Hey, everybody, and welcome to Cancer in the Room, the podcast. Now, the goal of our podcast is really quite simple. It's to highlight the inspiring stories of athletes, sports executives, and media personalities who have battled and beaten cancer. All of us on this podcast have cancer or continue to battle each day. Our spin is we all have to deal with cancer in the room, and yet we'll strive to push forward in a positive manner. Plus, we love talking sports. My name is Dave Jamison, and he is Bryn Griffiths. Well, our guest on today's episode is hockey analyst, broadcaster, but most widely recognized as a former senior official in the National Hockey League. Now, during his career, he called, well, let me get these numbers right, 1,904 career games, 12 Stanley Cup finals, 261 playoff games. He's pretty much done it all. And joining us in Cancer in the Room, the man, the myth, the hair, Kerry Fraser. <laughs> How you doing, man? Brent, I'm doing great, buddy. I'm on the right side of the ground, and uh, this is such an honor to be able to talk to to two fellow uh, fighters in the uh, in the world of cancer. Kerry, where we'd like to start is really kind of ground zero um, in I call it a relationship with cancer, and and maybe if you can even go before when you got the diagnosis. Was there any kind of a lead up for you? Like, can you go back to that time in your life when all of this entered the room, if you will? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, being the the little man syndrome, chip on the shoulder, the tough guy, the jock, uh, we just pushed through stuff. I mean, I did a whole game with a broken ankle in uh, 82 when Paul Coffey hit me with a slap shot five minutes in, knocked the end off my fibula. I knew it was broken, but I kept the skate laced up and did the game, finished it up, and my foot blew up. I was out seven weeks after that. You know, we, we just take that, and we're old school, all of us, because we're on the back nine here. Uh, we're old school guys that uh, just fight through stuff. We, we don't recognize uh, anything, any sort of weakness. If we, if we back down, it's, it's a, a show of personal weakness. And uh, so I, I was getting symptoms that I just thought, oh, well, I'm getting a little older. My balance has always been great, guys. I could stand on one skate blade and give a lecture for three minutes with, you know, on one skate. And all of a sudden, I, would, I was working with my son-in-law in the golf business and, and VIP hospitality, uh, any major sporting event in the world they do. And uh, so I was, I'd get up from my desk, and all of a sudden, I'd, I'd go, whoa, like, what the heck was that all about? A little off balance. Then I went, amazingly, invited to do a thing for St. Margaret's Cancer Research uh, fundraiser in Toronto, the biggest uh, outdoor ball hockey uh, tournament that in existence, uh, and it was at uh, Woodbine Racetrack. I was auctioned off the night before for a team, and, and the captain said to me, Kerry, do you want to coach or do you want to play? I said, coach, are you crazy? I'm playing. And, of course, I'm on the darker side, the older side of anybody else out in that little thing. It was 100 freaking degrees, and I go out for my first shift, and I'm battling a guy for the ball in the corner. I shoulder him off the, the ball. I chinked it off the, the uh, cage, and now I'm running up the, the concrete or the tarmac, and I see my uh, winger over there. I slide him one over. He one-times it into the net. We score. I raise my arms, and then everything started to spin. I am oh. going down, and I went, oh, my God, I'm dehydrated. Again, denial. I'm dehydrated, and, and I, you know, i got to get some water in me. It's too hot. Well, I had a, 
a, a lipoma, a fatty cell that I'd had for years. And all the trainers and doctors that I talked to, they just said, well, it's, it's you know, just a fatty cell. Make sure you keep uh, track of your uh, cholesterol. And uh, it's okay. You know, you can get it sucked out at some point. Well, I felt it starting to impinge on my bicep. And I wanted to get it taken out. So I'd seen a, a surgeon and right after this uh, ball hockey thing. And my uh, pre-blood uh, work for, for surgery, um, my GP called me and said, we got a problem here. Uh, your platelet count is over the freaking top. Got to get you into a specialist. So my wife called Fox Chase Cancer Clinic, and I bitched and moaned all the way over to Philadelphia, to North Philly, to go to this Fox Chase Cancer Clinic. I said, Kathy, you're way over the top on this. I don't need to go to a cancer clinic. Just get me to a hematologist. Anyway, long story short, we get the blood test done, and we, he does some other tests. We do a spinal tap, and, and uh, we go in for the consultation. And he said, uh, Dr. Stefan Bartoff from Germany, Great guy. He said, uh, well, we know what you have. He said, uh, it's a, uh, a blood cancer in the leukemia family. It's called essential thrombocythemia. We have no cure for it yet. Um, and my wife breaks down and starts crying. And uh, he said, but we can manage it. I said to him, Doc, you're the captain of my team. I want you to assemble a team of scorers, defensive people. I want a good goalie on this team. And I said, we're going we're gonna to deal with this. And, uh, and I said to Kathy, listen, Kathy said we could manage it, you know, like I'm trying to take her pain away. Um, and then we had to tell the kids and the same thing. I, you know, I'm, I'm being the tough guy. Hey, listen, kids, it's no big deal. You know, somebody's lived 10 years with it <laughs> to this point. I got at least 10 maybe. And uh, so uh, that's, that's kind of the mindset. I got a call from Mark Messier right away when it was officially announced uh, on the NHL network that I had this thing. And Mess called me and he said, hey, Kerry, listen, you never stop fighting. Keep fighting, buddy. Keep fighting. Bobby Orr phoned me. Same sort of thing. Every Christmas, Bobby Orr would call me, say, how you feeling? So you have this community of, of a network um, that are there to support you. And it, it just gives you that extra little lift. And, and I do the same thing when I hear somebody that has been sick. I'll talk to everybody and anybody uh, that, uh, that wants a little tip. One of the things, guys, that I found is, and, and I'm on nine chemo pills a week uh, since 2018. One of the side effects, I've been able to keep my hair. I can see you guys haven't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but but <laughs> stinger but it, i get some fatigue and i'm like the energizer bunny i go 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 and then all of a sudden i hit the wall and i have to crash and when i crash i go down for a solid 14 hours at least and i wasn't i wasn't recovering as quickly uh in the last six months so after uh, new year's I decided, okay, what would I do if I was on the road and I had 10 games in 12 days and I'm tired and I'm going from city to city and, and, and after eight or nine games, you check into the next location and your body says, go to bed. Well, yeah. at that point, what I did is I said, brain, let's go to the health club. 
don't go to bed, go to the health club. And I jump on the bike and I'd ride and it would energize me. So I thought, geez, it worked back through my career. Maybe it's going to work through this cancer stuff. And it's absolutely what happened. I'm doing 16 to 20 miles a day on the bike every day. I feel so good. Uh, I've, my weight is down to what it was in my final game in 2010. And it's really helping. I still hit the wall sometimes. And I have to, you know, take care of myself. But, um, you know, the other thing, guys, and, and I, I, I'll bet you you relate to this too. What do I do when I ride the bike? Do I watch TV? Do I listen to music? No. I dial in and I pray. I pray for a solid hour. I have a spiritual awareness during that period. It is the most calm time of the day for me. I pray for all kinds of people that I, I know are sick that are much worse off than me. And when you start thinking of other people, you start thinking less about yourself. Yeah. It's funny that you should say that because we had Steve Carlson on an episode earlier and uh, he went down the spiritual road as well. But the one thing that there seems to be a common denominator with all of us, certainly with us, for me, I enjoyed having that meditation time out in the backyard. It was an opportunity yep. for me to listen to the birds, to look at the squirrels. It's the stuff that I never had time for before. And then all of a sudden, it just made me see the world so different. Now, the other thing that Steve brought up that I want to get to with you is that we have caregivers in our lives, and that's families, that's doctors, that's these people who uh, we always like to say in a hockey term would come over the wall for you when you're getting you know beaten up a bit in the corner. But uh, talk about the people who were your caregivers. And also, you mentioned Mess and you mentioned Bobby Orr. There are guys not only in the hockey field, but people who stepped up to try to rally the troops, so to speak. Can you address any of that? Well, for sure. My wife, Kathy, is absolutely my best friend in life, uh, has been since we've been married. We, we have seven children and 13 grandchildren. Uh, she is an incredible soul. Um, and uh, she um, is not only with me, but with our children, our grandchildren, and, and anybody that needs help. Uh, she's out there uh, and she steps up big time. Uh, I call her Dr. Google. <laughs> she, she goes to Google and she's looking up all this stuff. When I had uh, chemically induced hepatitis in uh, 87, I guess it was, uh, from a uh, medication that I had an allergic reaction to for a sinus infection, uh, I missed six months of that uh, season. And Kath was making me all kinds of concoctions uh, to, to help uh, rejuvenate the liver. And I mean, it tasted like garbage, but it, uh, I just kept drinking it because I, I trusted her. And she, she is that uh, caregiver uh, that um, is always there for me. The same thing with our children. Uh, you know, they, we, we really have a wonderful family. Um, and so when you look at things, we talk about God first, family second, and then ourselves somewhere way down the line. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where we're at with this. I was plugged into uh, an MPN network uh, in Canada. Uh, and there was a lady, uh, uh, Cheryl Petrick from Edmonton. Her husband had exactly the same thing I had. He subsequently passed uh, a, a couple, three years ago. Um, but she uh, right away connected with me and uh, uh, shared with me information that I didn't know about. Um, even though I, I'd talked to the doctor and, uh, you know, 
people that live the journey, they can oftentimes give you more information uh, that's pertinent to you. Um, I represented the MPN Foundation. We did uh, four mountain hikes uh, recently uh, this uh, last summer uh, where we raised over $100,000 for cancer research for the MPN specific because there is no cure. Um, and, and in getting together with these cancer fellow cancer patients, uh, MPN patients, have the same thing as you have, I have. Uh, and sitting around the room in our break sort of the ice uh, initial meeting, we shared things about uh, our symptoms. And I learned so much, guys. It was incredible. Like my hands, they're, sometimes they feel like they're on fire. Same thing with my feet. And I thought, wow, what this is, you know, I fought a lot as a player and I've had, you know, all kinds of things with my hands, broken knuckles and hit with pucks. And I thought, well, it's just a result of that. No, it's a result of what the, the cancer that I have. And it's a symptom of it. And my feet, I was getting gout. We had a scientist uh, that's been in the MPN Foundation for like 30, 40 years doing research. He said, you've got gout because you have MPN. It goes with it. And he said, I always put my patients on a gout medicine. So all of these kinds of things, when we're sitting around sharing our story um, and we support one another. So on the hike, we did a 13 and a half mile hike in Denver at 13,000 feet. It was wow. not for the faint of heart. And I got to tell you, it was tough. So when I did the 98 Olympics in Nagano, Japan, the first time they allowed the officials to, and players to come over, I bought a pair of hiking boots. I only wore them two times over in Nagano. I had them stored and I thought, well, I got a hike. I'll put on these hiking boots. I went a mile and a half on this 13 and a half mile hike at 13,000 feet and my soles fell off. They were dry rotted. <laughs> so we had, a, we had a, uh, a guide on the thing and I said, hey, buddy, I said, have you got any hockey tape or, or duct tape in your bag? He said, yeah, I got duct tape. I said, well, you got to tape these soles back on because I got to finish this hike. And uh, sure enough, uh, we put the duct tape on both, uh, both feet, taped up the boots and away I went. Uh, there's no quit. And, and, you know, that's kind of the message. There's no quit here for us, guys. You fight, you fight, you fight, just like Mess said. You do whatever is necessary and stay positive. Positive is the way that we can feel good uh, and we can, we can do our best, not only for ourselves, but for those around us. Kerry, I hope I've got this quote right from you, but I loved it. As soon as I saw it, I went, this is the product of someone that, that who is fighting cancer but living with it in a way and you know you just exude positivity i want to live with it i don't want to die from it is do i have that largely correct that's your mantra that's, that's exactly mantra. absolutely and i said that to the doctor right right off the bat uh when, with kathy uh you know with the tissues wiping her tears away uh i said doc i said uh i want to i want to die with this and not because of it i want to die with it and not because of it and he said that's the objective when now let's go back just a step here so you're at this event at uh, woodbine how long ago yeah. was that oh gosh that was in 2000 uh, early summer of 18 so you're done you're you're done officiating now this is going to sound weird 
Do you think you're in better shape now in some ways than you were when you officiated? Because the one thing, you, you know, you, you talked about, uh, you know, the, the stuff you've been doing lately. This is the kind of stuff where sometimes people don't, they think they could do it, but probably they couldn't. But there seems to be a strength that comes with this. I, I don't know. Do you find that at all or am I imagining that? No, you're not imagining it. But, I, I, you know, Carly will tell you, Jack will tell you the same thing. Um when I talked to, uh, and I started riding the bike and I talked to my hematologist, I said, you know, my heart rate is, and I manage my heart rate big time. I have, you know, I have the watch on and I make sure that my heart stays at a certain thing. I used to train at 165 to 170 beats a minute. I'd hold it for a, a good 45 minutes to 50 minutes at, at that rate. And right. so I started riding the bike and I thought, well, I'm just going to pick up where I left off. And I was over 160 beats a minute. And I'm 71 years old on May 30th, guys. And so um, in, in 2018, uh, the doc said, yeah, you know what? If, if your body's used to that, it's okay, I guess. But you really don't need to. You're not training for, you know, the Stanley Cup finals anymore. He said, yeah. maybe just keep it a little more moderate. So I keep it around 150 to I max out at 153 or 4. Uh, and if it gets any higher, I just kind of back it down a little bit. But I go for a full hour, um, and uh, but I, I do keep a close watch. Am I in better shape now than I was? No, for sure not. Um, because uh, when I when I was you know one referee on the ice, I was skating six to eight miles a game, chasing the play. Um, right. I, I didn't like to blow the whistle. I wanted the play to keep moving. So my objective was the best friend of a referee is a moving puck. I would force the players to keep the puck moving. And especially at the start of a game, guys, because if, um, if I got three minutes of a sustained run, all of the players would get into the game. Everybody's, you know, first, second, third liners, they're all in. They're playing 35, 40 second shifts. Everybody's going to take a shift. They're going to take their checks. They're going to give their checks. Once the play stops, that's when all the, crap starts to happen right you know you get scrums you get fights uh so i would want it to go for a good three minutes and i'm chasing the play end to end i didn't go off at 35 40 second shifts so i was in amazing condition uh cardiovascular at that time um i blew my acl out in my left knee when i was 15 years old playing uh i had five surgeries on that knee they back then they never uh, replaced or fixed your acl they just took the cartilage out so i'm bone on bone and i managed uh my uh my body and and my maintenance of all the injuries that i had along the way i've got a torn rotator cuff in the left shoulder from a hit i took in 2009 from behind from a calgary defenseman of course uh, rookie yeah. kid. And uh, he got me. Um, I got him back two weeks later, though. We collided, and he had his head down, and I popped there you him. Go. Was it Tim Hunter, <laughs> was it? Because he does, he, he's does. he been watching our, our podcast, so I just want to make that perfectly clear. I, lo I love Hunter. He Hunts is a great guy. He's a character guy. Um, you know, all the tough guys, and I tried to befriend them. I wanted them on sort of my terms uh, yep. because when things hit the fan – they're the guys that I could go to and say, hey, listen, Hunts, you got to calm your guys down a little bit, will you please? Like, oh, okay, phrase, okay. You know, you could, you could uh, develop a rapport and a respect, uh, especially with those guys, because they had a hard job. 
and I respected them immensely. Kerry, refereeing in any sport has got to be incredibly tough. Um, you wouldn't know it by the criticism you guys <clears throat> receive in all sports. Um, what are the qualities a good referee, uh, an effective referee, has to have? Uh, and if you want to confine it to the NHL, that's great, or if it's more broadly, if there are characteristics that apply in other sports as well. But what are the things that you absolutely must have if you're going to succeed? Well, the first thing you have to have is an understanding of your role within the game. I think sometimes, um, you know, we've been accused of, of trying to be the show, trying to uh, uh, be front and center, take charge. It's often said that if you don't know who the referee was that refereed the game, he did a good job. But in our game, that's not always true. If I go back to the 70s and the 80s and the brawling that took place, you had to step up sometimes. And every game has a heartbeat. And uh, your tough guys will tell you that. Um, it would be their job. If this, if this heartbeat gets going too fast, they would have to step in and try and do something to control it. I wanted to be the controller before that happened. And there's certain ways that you could do it. You have to have an, an ability as a referee. And, and I think in some cases, from what I hear players today, uh, this isn't happening uh, as much as it should. You have to develop a, a relationship with, with all elements of the game, with the players and the coaches. You have to communicate with them. And I learned it the hard way, but I learned it very quickly because I had that little man syndrome and the type A personality and the chip on my shoulder. And from playing, you know, I, I just automatically transitioned into refereeing and I had to learn on the job. I had no experience at it. And, and it was tough, and there were some rough spots. The beauty of it was after every game, I would go back to my hotel room at the end of the night, and I would reflect on the things that I did and the things that I needed to do better to achieve a better outcome. And I learned in a, in a dispute with Wayne Gretzky in our very first game in Northlands Coliseum that I needed to be better, uh, that I was going to show him. He took a dive on me in the very five, ten seconds into the game, and I was going to make him pay for it. Because uh, we didn't have a diving penalty back then, and the Broad Street Bullies and uh, and uh, Bobby Clark were playing that night in the Northlands. The crowd was on me, and I just got so stubborn that I was not going to let Wayne Gretzky uh, intimidate me or show me up. And hey, Bill Barber, hey, Bill Barber, who's yes. also a bit of a you know showman. Absolutely, uh, and but he got a free reign that night because it was all Gretz. <laughs> and I got into this, you know, confrontation that never should yeah. have happened. And uh, at the end of the night, uh, with a minute and a half left and, and not calling a penalty on, on the kid, uh, Pelly Lindbergh caught the puck with a minute and a half left. I stopped the play. The Flyers are up by one goal. And behind the net, Wayne in his office jumped in the air. He threw his hands out one way, feet out the other way. He did a belly flop on the ice. Bobby Clark skated over to him with no teeth and said, get up, Gretzky, you blank baby. I went over and I said, Wayne, what are you doing? I said, there wasn't a guy within 15 feet of you. He said, you wouldn't have called it anyway. You haven't called a blank thing all night. I said, you're right. I'm going to start right now. You got two for unsportsmanlike conduct. He said, thanks. It's about blank time you called something. And he stormed off the ice. Now, the Flyers won that game, and I went back to my hotel room after, and I started to reflect on what I should have done better. And it hit me right. like a board between the eyes. I compromised my integrity, the rules, the game I love, 
and and uh, the employer that that I worked for. And I apologized to Wayne the next time I saw him, but I had to figure out what it was about me that caused me to react like that. And I did. Right. I apologized to Wayne. I said, I, my bad. And please, in the future, if you're fouled, I'll call the penalty. Stay on your feet. We developed an amazing relationship. Well, and you talked about the fact that you played, but you obviously and clearly moved into the officiating category. Did you have a mentor who was an official, or did you always have a mentor growing up that was a player? Like, how did you determine which direction you were going to go here? Well, I was a good little player. I, I was a captain of the Sarnia team in the Junior A League, and I um, was undrafted. I had a bunch of U.S. scholarship offers to D1 schools. I didn't go that route. I could have played uh, in the minor pro leagues, and a friend, my dad played in the IHL uh, years ago in the original six teams. He was a goon. He was a boxer. I played three years of AAA midget for him. We won all Ontario championships. Five guys on that team went off and played in the NHL. My line mate, Wayne Merrick, won four cups with uh, the New York Islanders. Bob Neely, big Bob Neely, first draft pick of the Toronto Maple Leafs on defense. He was on that team. Uh, so um, I never thought about officiating. I did a little bit with my dad just to get some extra skating in industrial leagues to make some money as a, as a kid playing. Uh, but then when I was at that crossroads, what am I going to do now at 19 years of age, just turned 20, uh, finished junior? And Ted Garvin, who played pro with my dad, uh, was coaching in the IHL and went on to coach the Detroit Red Wings. He said, Kerry, listen, you're a good little player. You play big, you play tough, but you're not going to make it to the NHL. You can play in our league and you can probably play in the American League, but you're going to get hurt. Why don't you get into officiating? And the light went on and he handed me a, a brochure to a referee school. I paid $250 that uh 1972, I went uh, in uh, September, late September, to the camp. It was five days. At the second last day, I refereed 10 minutes of a, a men's industrial league game. And uh, Frank Udbury, uh, Hockey Hall of Fame, former referee, was the assistant director of officiating. He watched me work 10 minutes. I didn't know where to stand. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, he met me when I came off the ice in the dressing room. And he said, I really like what I saw. And I think you've got some ability here. I'd like to bring you to the NHL training camp for officials. Two days later, I was at training camp for the NHL referees and linesmen. It was a 10-day camp. They put me in the American Hockey League. Uh, John Van Boxmeer was the first pick of the Canadians that year. I played junior against him the year before. He's playing for the Halifax Voyagers. I'm working in that league. And so it, it just was, we, we had separate paths. And I once I dropped the stick and the gloves, I absolutely loved the, the officiating part of the game. Kerry, can you watch hockey now? And I'm not asking you to call out either the style of officiating or the decisions they make, but you as a fan, can you, sure. can you, can you separate what you used to do with what you're watching and can you just enjoy hockey or do you always kind of look at it through the lens of being an official? I think, uh, one, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the game, and I love the game, and I always did. I always wanted to make the game better through my participation <clears throat> as an official. When I look at the game now, and it's, it's, you know, 2005, the game got really fast. We got rid yeah. of the clutch and the grab and the hook and the water skiing and all that sort of obstruction, they called it. Uh, so I participated in that right through 2010. 
So I was part of the faster game. It is skilled, fast, but I see that there's certain things that I kind of cringe when I'm watching the game because I'm critiquing it as an official. And one of the things that I had to design uh, is a positioning philosophy that I did in 1984 because I was too small to see over and around players. It was adopted by the Canadian Hockey Association and USA Hockey. Uh, it works. Um, it's a, and I learned it from watching Wayne Gretzky play. He saw the ice in advance. He knew not where the puck was now, but three, four chess moves down the board. He knew where the puck was going to be. Uh, and I tried to develop that sort of uh, vision of the ice as a referee so that I could move away from where the puck was going to be and players give them their ice. I see guys that are getting in the way, they're getting hurt, they're getting hit. Uh, and when you're in the play, when you're, it's right on you, you don't see things. You've got to have a distance, a, a perspective, an angle. It's a game of angles. Uh, so, yeah, I see it and I think, oh, my God, I wish I could talk to that kid. I wish I, I know I could help him. Um, but I'm watching it as a fan and I'm still rooting for the refs and the linesmen. They do a great job. They get all kinds of criticism like I did when playoff time. I mean, especially, right? That's when everybody yeah. gets excited. Uh, and the game is is really exciting. It's funny, though, um, I, I on April 26th, I received something from Pittsburgh Penguin uh, Chronicles or something. And it was uh, the anniversary of a game that I did in the first round of the playoffs that day years ago. And it was the Washington Capitals playing against the Pittsburgh Penguins. And we had a brawl like you can't believe. I mean, it was behind the goal line. Craig Berube and another guy jumped on on a uh, Pittsburgh defenseman. Everybody's involved. And I'm looking up ice, and I see goalie Ole Coles charging with no gloves, no mask on. And I took off from behind the goal line to intercept him. And Dale Hunter was fighting with another player at the red line. And my brain was like, you're going to find this nuts, but this is exactly what I was thinking. As I'm racing in there, I see Colsey coming, and he's a big guy, and I was going to throw a cross-body block across oh. his upper body to stop him from getting into this fight, and we're both going full speed, and I got there right. just a little late, and I pulled up, and Colsey just, he, he got pole-axed and knocked down. I ragdolled Dale Hunter out of the thing and pulled him up. I mean, it was bedlam, but... When you look at the game now, the guys don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Hey, uh, through Different your problems. career, you, you did 12 Stanley Cup finals, which is a, a, a tremendous number. But through your career, not all of your highlights, I'm guessing, were Stanley Cup finals. Do you, like, do you have like two or three memories that are great ones for you? And then give us the one that, that still bothers you, uh, even, even at, uh, as, we, uh, as I like to say, at my age, my advancing age. Like, how, how do you, is there one that really sticks out for you? Let's do the, the good stuff first, and then we'll do maybe sure. the And I, I, a lot of us think we may know the one that you don't like, but you, surprise yeah. us, will you? Well, there'd be no surprise on the one that, uh, that I don't like, but, uh, let's go to the, the good stuff. Uh, my first Stanley cup final was 1985. I'd only done two previous years of playoffs. I did one round, uh, two years prior the year before I did two rounds. And now all of a sudden I'm in the Stanley cup final 1985, one referee, two linesmen. I was with, uh, Andy Van Helmond and, uh, 
uh, Brian Lewis uh, were the other referees that were chosen. And I, I, my first game went well. John McCauley had, was our boss. He had a lot of confidence in me and, and made me feel good. Um, he was trying to incubate me a little bit. Game, I did game two. It went great in, in Philly. And I was to stand by for four and worked five. Andy Van Helman said, do you want to go for a skate in the morning? We went to Northlands Coliseum and he went around the ice one time and he said, my back's sore. I don't, I can't work tonight. I went, okay. Uh, I'm the backup. That means I got to go in, right? Pivotal game four. So I said, we'll go back and tell Macaulay and I'm ready to go. I, I was into bed early last night, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> Macaulay said, Andy, you you're like you better get out there because uh, Andy said I can't work my back sore. So I went into game four and it, it was fantastic. I mean, I had the the flyers down too short. Uh, one of the Sutter twins on the kill intercepted a D to D pass. He's going in on a breakaway. He got pulled down from behind. I call a penalty shot. I go to Grant Fuhr. Grant was such a calm guy. Amazing. I'd look in his mask and and Grant would just be like you know. Da da da. So I said, listen, Grant, don't leave the crease until he touches the puck. And you let me know when you're ready and I'll blow the whistle. He said, just send him. I'm ready. Just send him. And he stopped Sutter on the bridge. Like it was like clockwork. Uh, it was a wonderful experience uh, in my first final. The game that I recall as really being special was the Winter Classic in Fenway Park. My final season, New Year's Day, 2010. And I'll tell you why, guys. Because I came through that storied ballpark. And I'm coming through the tunnel to get to the dugout. And I'm thinking, all these great players, Babe Ruth, Carl Yastrzemski, Carlton Fisk, you name it. They came through this little tunnel. And I step up onto the uh, dugout steps. And I see the green monster and, and the Penske's pole and the crowd. And they, they see the jersey. And they start to cheer because they know the game's going to start. And I go to a deep shortstop, and they're standing as the two honorary captains in their jerseys, Bobby Orr, Bobby Clark. I gave them a hug when I stepped on the ice, and we had crisp air. We had fresh snow, and I took off, and I felt like a little kid again in my backyard rink in Sarnia, Ontario, that my dad made for us. And it was like the fountain of youth. I felt so great. And it's almost like deja vu where you start your career as a little kid wanting to be an NHL player on a backyard rink in, in uh, Canada. And now all of a sudden you've gone full circle. You've made certain uh, milestones and, and made certain strides within the game. And now you're back on the outdoor rink. It was like just incredible. Now, the one that really I want back, guys, no surprise, the 1993 missed call on the high stick. In overtime, I had Glenn Anderson in the penalty box. He tried to uh, rob, uh, run Rob Blake's head through the boards, and I gave him a boarding penalty in OT. It was game six, and we had, um, had, had Toronto won that game. It's a Montreal-Toronto Stanley Cup final. Well, off this face-off, I missed the, the fact that uh, Gretz, I thought he was maybe shooting the puck. I didn't see it. Doug Gilmore thought he was a follow-through on a shot. He wasn't sure. But sure enough, the replay shows it was a missed high stick. That's the one I would like back. I have to ask you, and we've done it with a couple of guests, there's a player that you have to watch. If you know they're playing, you will stop what you're doing to find that game on TV because you like what they're doing so much. Who is that? 
Oh my God, Connor McDavid is just amazing. Uh, I I saw the kid as a 14 year old when I was working with TSN, and uh, the uh, NHLPA did a all uh, Canadian, uh, all state, all Canadians uh, scouting uh, the uh, Bantam Age players the season before. Gary Roberts ran a camp in Toronto. Uh, they brought in all kinds of different uh, specialists, uh, NHL players to teach the kids things. And they asked me, uh, to, we, we broadcast their final game on a Saturday, coast to coast in Canada. And I put a wireless mic on me. I was part of the, uh, you know, as I refereed the game, I was interviewing players and, and getting sound bites. Uh, but I saw this and they asked me to speak to the players because they brought in, you know, accountants and agents and these kids were all going to be millionaires and i said yes i'll speak to the players about developing relationships uh that are fruitful especially referee player but the only way i'll do it is if i can speak to their parents as well because they're the most influential of these kids at that age and the mom and dad of connor mcdavid were salt of the earth they were incredible and this kid was so mature and so humble i thought wow the apple didn't fall far from the tree but the skill that was demonstrated was over the top. Hey, listen, thank you for your time. Uh, what you've done here, and this is what we found with everybody we've chatted with, is that, you know, it's hard to talk about where you've been recently, but everybody, and we're, the feedback we're getting has been unbelievable. Everybody is so uh, so upbeat about their battle and how they can help others. And you have just helped more people again with coming on here today. And we can't thank you enough for that. Well, one last point, guys, <clears throat> you know, you talk about a battle. I don't have a battle. I feel so blessed that what I have, we can fight through. There are a lot of people that are so much worse off. And those are the people that we need to help. We need to support and we need to boost up just like Messier and Bobby Orr and my wife, Kathy, as my caretaker do for me, um, we need to help others and we're helping ourselves at the same time. Thanks, Kerry. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kerry. Thanks, gents. Okay. That's it for today. Thanks for being with us as we talk sports and cancer on our podcast. We really hope the story shared today helped to make your day better and to inspire you to recognize so many have gone through so much and there's positive stuff happening all the time on the beat cancer front. Okay, now if you have a comment on today's podcast or maybe a suggestion of somebody that you would like us to track down and talk to, then please feel free to drop us a note. It's really simple. The email address is mine. It's Bryn, B-R-Y-N, at road55.ca. Or you can also check out our Twitter feed. That one's really simple too. It's at Cancer in the Room. And we also have a website as well. It's www.cancerintheroom.com. And don't forget, you can also catch us on any of your favorite ear candy sites, Apple, Spotify, or Google. Just subscribe, and every time we drop a new episode, it goes automatically to your mobile device and tell your friends, too. That's it for today, Dave. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you to Carrie Fraser for joining us on this episode. Have yourself a great day, everybody, and we're out of here. This series is proudly produced by the team at Road 55. Road 55 creates content that connects. For more information, check our website, www.road55.ca.